in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. And Father, we thank you for the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And we also thank you for our resurrection from the dead. Dead, to, dead in sin, in trespasses, and yet you have quickened us, you've made us alive in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for your mercy upon our lives. We thank you for your care, your love, your leading, your grace, your compassion, all the characteristics that you are God is all that we need. And we love you so much. And thank you for meeting with us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hello, family. It is a good evening, and thank you for your prayers. I feel back to normal today, so praise God for that. Amen. If you'd open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8, we're going to continue on in verses 28 through 50, and we are in the prayer of Solomon, and the title of tonight's message is Seven Cases for God's Mercy and Intervention. And aren't you thankful that that God extends mercy to us every single day. And he is so keenly interested in our lives that he, he definitely intervenes in ways that he sees necessary and fit. And as we read through this prayer of Solomon, we're going to find that uh, there are seven instances where Solomon in his prayer calls out to God, and he describes seven different cases where he's asking God for mercy and to intervene. And it's a beautiful prayer. So as we've been studying this, this prayer of Solomon, uh, the temple, remember, has been completed. Solomon has a wonderful heart of gratitude for all that the Lord has done, and he began to ponder the greatness of God, the vastness of his power, the, the incredible presence of God, and how the temple that was just completed is magnificent. However, that magnificence is nothing compared to God. So he says in verse 28, he said, Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today, that thine eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make Toward this place. This place, of course, he's referring to the temple. God's dwelling place, we know, is, is heaven. But Solomon says, When thou hearest from heaven, I want you, I'm asking you to forgive. And this is actually pretty remarkable because Solomon knows that this temple is not only a place of worship, but also the temple is a place of sacrifice, a place of sacrifice for sin. And now, Solomon will mention, as we continue on in this chapter, seven cases where he seeks the mercy and intervention of God. And he seeks mercy and intervention on the condition that the people pray and pray with an earnest heart. And he will say, and we're going to see this, if or when this particular thing happens, then, God, will you do something? Will you act? And it's so beautiful because it's a very, very deep and heartfelt prayer of Solomon's. So as the glory of God filled the temple, so radiant, the temple so beautiful, so holy, Solomon says, God, we're here. Your, your presence, we know, is here, and we don't even deserve to stand before you. You, you are holy. 
and we're not. He's asking God, when your people pray toward this place, if, if they have sinned, please forgive them. And you see, Solomon knows Israel all too well. He knows the hearts of the people. So the first case that Solomon brings to the Lord is what we can call doubtfulness. Let's read verses 31 and 32. Actually, let's back up to 30. He said, And hearken unto the voice of the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel when they shall pray toward this place, and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. If any man trespass against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, and the oath come before thine altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven, and do, and judge thy servants, condemning the wicked to bring his way upon his head, and justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness. This is speaking of there's, there's one word against another. For example, there's a neighbor that accuses another of harm or, or some kind of injury, some wrongdoing. And both of them, both parties, they take an oath. And then this oath, it's before the temple, which is a place to verify and authorize oaths. But both of these men, they claim to be right. And Solomon, we know that God gave him wisdom. He knows that both cannot be right. One made a proper oath and the other a false oath. So Solomon prayed, God, if this should happen, you be the judge between those two parties. Praying that in difficult matters such as this, the throne of grace then would also become a throne of judgment. Asking God to reveal the truth but to judge the guilty. So he's saying, God, I'm asking that you would sort this out and do whatever needs to be done. And that was Solomon's heart. Solomon, as, as king and the wisest man on earth, could have said, you know what, God, you gave me great wisdom. So I'm going to figure this out. I'll be the one that decides. I'll judge. But he didn't. Why? Because he knew that even though God gave him incredible wisdom, his wisdom was still nothing compared to the wisdom of God. So he left it in God's hands. Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes I try to trust in my own wisdom. I try to trust in my own wisdom rather than lay it at God's feet. Maybe some of you have done that as well. Once, maybe twice in your life. I've done it a lot more than that. And every single time, the, the, the end result is not favorable. You know, the Scriptures tell us, and I think it's Psalm 37, it says, commit thy way to the Lord, and he shall bring it to pass. So those matters where we scratch our heads and say, I just don't know what to do. God, would you intervene, you settle it, you work it out. To your glory, my hands are off. Your hands are on. The second case we find in verses 33 and verse 34, and it says, When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee, and shall turn again to thee, and confess thy name, and pray, and make supplication unto thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven, and forgive the sin of thy people Israel, and bring them again unto the land which thou gavest unto their fathers. 
You see, many, many times in Israel's history, they suffered defeat at the hands of the enemies. And they were often led into captivity because the things that they had done were displeasing to God. They displeased God with their transgressions. So God delivered them up for judgment. But praise God. And it's very clear here in verse 34 that God hears the cries of a penitent heart, doesn't he? Solomon said, if, if the people turn back to you, God, and confess your name, which they have denied because of their sin, God, would you hear from heaven and bring them back once again to their homeland? Solomon asked God to hear the prayers of a defeated yet humble and penitent Israel. And God answered that prayer of Solomon's. He forgives and he restores his defeated people when they come in humble repentance. Have you ever been in a place where you've felt like you've been defeated by your sin? Well, what was or is the solution? The solution is to go before the Lord humbly and grieving your sin and seeking the Lord for forgiveness. And God forgives and he restores, doesn't he? And praise God for that. You know, you may have lost a battle, but you know what? God won the war through his son, Jesus Christ. King David in Psalm 51, verses 6 through 12, he said, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in a hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. We just sang about this, how beautiful it is. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. You see, family, that was, that was King David's prayer. And he said, Behold, God, you desire truth in, in the inward parts. And David opened up his heart to truth, and he confessed his sin. Purge me with hyssop, he prayed, asking God to purge him of his sin, healing that only the finger of God could, could apply. David said, purge me, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Blot out my iniquities. In other words, wipe them out. That's a miracle of God because God does that, doesn't he? Solomon and David both knew that sin is a joy robber. David said in this psalm, he said, Make me to hear joy and gladness because of your pardoning mercy. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And, and you know, that's a painful prayer. Why? Because it shows that David had the joy of God's salvation, but then he lost the joy because of sin. He didn't lose his salvation. He lost the joy that God's salvation brought to his heart. And you see, family, sin strips us of the joy we once had. And thankfully, as we see here, joy can be returned through repentance. The third case that Solomon presents to the Lord, we see in verses 35 and 36 where he says, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against thee 
If they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou afflictest, afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel, that thou teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon the land which thou hast given to thy people for an inheritance. Because of their sin, this is a case that Solomon's bringing before the Lord, because of the people's sin and their ceasing to walk in the ways of the Lord, he said God would withhold the rain. And if God withheld the rain, the harvest would certainly be compromised. Well, there's a spiritual implication in that too. The compromise of sin in our life compromises the harvest, doesn't it? We aren't just as, as effective in our witness as we ought to be. In the book of Leviticus, it speaks of this in chapter 26, verses 19 through 20. It says, And I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heaven as iron, and your earth as brass, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield her increase, neither shall the trees of the land yield their fruits. He said, I will break the pride of your power. Or perhaps we could change the words a little bit and say break the power of your pride. Let's face it, pride is a very, very powerful thing. Pride causes us to be unyielding to God, and it's so very dangerous. And it comes in many, many forms, some of which maybe we wouldn't even think of. For example, not receiving the Word of God. We read it, we kind of say, well, not me, not now. What is that? That's, we're saying, God, my way is better. Or not receiving the correction that, that God's Word brings to us. Not admitting our mistakes or defending oneself and taking a stand on behalf of ourselves. And it's so huge that God calls it one of the seven deadly sins. Proverbs 29, verse 23 says, A man's pride shall bring him low. Proverbs eleven twelve, When pride comes, then comes shame. Proverbs 13, 10, Only with pride comes contention. Proverbs 14, 3, In the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride. And Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction. Knowing how deadly pride is, God says, I will break the pride of your power. Why? Because it's good for us that it is broken. Because pride plugs our ears to the word of God. Pride silences God's voice so that what I hear is what I want to hear. That's why God speaks so strongly against it. He said in, in Leviticus, he said, I will make your heavens like iron and your earth as brass. And God's saying here, if you disobey, I'm going to make your heavens like iron, an iron shield. In other words, much the same as we're seeing here in 1 Kings chapter 8, no rain. And I will make the earth of bronze so hard that, that they cannot plant crops. And God says, I will do this to break your pride. Let's think about this. Why is, why is God saying, this is the kind of judgment that I will bring forth upon you in order to break your pride? Well, I think it's this. There's no quicker way to expose the limitations of man than through a drought. There's nothing anyone can do to make up for a lack of rain because it comes from God. So there, that is one way God could use to get the attention of his children. And let me... Let me just talk about this for a minute, how true it is. 
I want to take a moment and comment on the United States of America. And this comes from a website called, believe it or not, drought.gov. And here's what it says. And this is speaking in today's terms. Drought has led to record low levels on the Mississippi River and its two main tributaries, the Missouri and Ohio Rivers. Much of the entire lower 48 states and Hawaii are experiencing dryness or drought, except for a few pockets of some parts of the east. According to the October 25, 2022 U.S. Drought Monitor, 52.7% of the U.S. and 62.95% of the lower 48 states are in drought. That's a lot. Those are huge numbers. Other statistics. 393.3 million acres of crops are experiencing drought conditions, and it's increasing. Nearly 150 million U.S. citizens are affected by drought, and that's also increasing. Given these statistics and these scriptures from 1 Kings chapter 8 and Leviticus chapter 26, doesn't it seem possible that God has his finger of judgment on the United States? Doesn't it seem that way given these scriptures now? Am I saying that's exactly what it is? No, I'm not. What I'm saying is let's pay attention and, and see the signs of the times here. And I do believe that in many ways God has his finger of judgment on our nation. And I believe the pressure from that finger is going to get greater and greater until we repent. So is there hope? Well, there's, there's always hope. As long as there's room for repentance, right? Again, verse 35, If they pray toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou afflictest, afflictest them, then, verse 36, which is conditional, then hear, I will hear from heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel, that thou teach them the good way. Solomon is saying, God, teach them from their mistakes and chastening so that they will walk uprightly. And that's what God does with us. In Hebrews 12, verse 11 says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. It's so true. But it's grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. I'd also like to read that same verse from the New Living Translation. It says, No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in his way. You know, when God chastens us, what he's saying is, Listen to me and pay attention to me. Pay attention to the chastening because it will lead you into the way of right living. So God teaches us through chastening, and he wants us to learn from it. Otherwise, if we fail to learn, we're going to repeat it. Proverbs 26 speaks of that in verse 11. As a dog returneth to his own vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. And that's not a pretty picture. You've seen a dog return to his vomit, and it's pretty gross. The fourth case that Solomon brings before God includes what we would call several kinds of evils. Let's look at verse 37. And there's a whole bunch of them here. If there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locust, or if there be caterpillar, 
if their enemy besiege them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be. That's a lot of afflictions. If any of these things mentioned come to pass, then look at verse 38. What prayer and supplication soever be made by any man or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart and spread forth his hands toward this house. And then we'll get into then in just a moment. If any of these things come to pass, what Solomon is saying is then search our hearts. He's calling on us to search our hearts so that every man would know the plague of his own heart. In other words, we're all contributors. What a description of sin, a plague of heart. And oftentimes we don't see it or we don't want to see it. However, Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful and desperate, above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? And he continues and says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. I think of the apostles' reaction to Jesus when he said, One of you will betray me. Every one of them to a man said, Lord, is it I? That suggests a negative answer was cautiously expected, as if to say, It's not I, is it? But you see, family, this is a very beautiful mark of a disciple. Only one of them was in hypocrisy. That's Judas. But all of them said, Lord, is it I? It shows they had a healthy mistrust of themselves, doesn't it? They have the consciousness to understand that each of them has within themselves the capacity to betray Jesus. Why do I say that's healthy? Well, I say it because we can look at someone else's sin and say, it's never going to happen to me. Watch out. That's a dishonest assessment. But the disciples that walked with Jesus for three and a half years so close to him, they said, Lord, is it I? And can I be so proud as to say, not me, never? But Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And yes, there will be some that say, not happening. I'm too spiritual. I'm too strong. But we need to take a warning here from the example of the apostles and say, Lord, is it I? Knowing that we're capable of just about anything. Others may say, I'm too deep into this. There is no escape from it. There's no way out. I am trapped in this situation, in this sin right now. But listen to the very next verse in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10 where he says, There there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He says God will always make a way of escape. We just need to take it. We need to exit stage left or right, whatever it might be. We need to get out, get away, turn direction, run away, flee for our lives. That's the escape plan. Again, the disciples said, Lord, is it I? Because I don't want to be the one that you're talking about. Here in 1 Kings 8, Solomon is saying these plagues, 
These afflictions may very well be the consequences of your own sin. And if your own people recognize their, their, their own wickedness, then, verse 39, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways who heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men. This passage reminds me of 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. Here's what it reads. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, again, this whole concept of rain and judgment, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal, heal their land. This coming Monday at 7 o'clock here at church, we'll be praying for our midterm elections. 7 o'clock, you're all welcome. Bring whomever you want to bring because there's a very, very important election coming up. And we need to be on our faces before the Lord. Notice what it says, if my people. In other words, we have a part in this. If my people, he's calling out to us, and God show us our sin, that, that we can be broken at the foot of the cross and repent and turn from our wicked ways. You know, the church is as responsible as anybody else. We can point figures and say, no, it's them. But no, God said, if it's my people, humble themselves and pray and seek my face. I pray we can do that on Monday night and seek the Lord's face. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, the psalmist said, and this is all in the same theme here, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In the New Testament, Paul the Apostle shows us the importance of acknowledging our sin before partaking of communion. And we find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and if we look at verse 28, it says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Well, what is the examination? It's when I hold the bread in my hand and ask, is my life a broken life, or is my sin all about me? Is it, am I been broken before the cross of Christ? Or am I so self-consumed that I won't allow that brokenness to take place? Is my life like Christ's, where I'm willing to be broken in order that people can have a relationship with God? You see, we really can't be used by God until we're broken before God. Otherwise, we've got nothing to tell. We've got nothing to say. So we're to examine ourselves for Christ-likeness. In verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 11, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Unfortunately, on a basis of this passage, many people think they're unworthy to partake of communion because they're struggling with sin or temptation. But you know what? That would be like a doctor saying to a sick person, when you're feeling better, call me. It doesn't make sense. You see, the communion table is the place to come and say, Lord, I desperately need you. 
I desperately need you. I partake of your body and the cup knowing that I am forgiven. And thank you, Lord, for allowing me to celebrate the victory. And when Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church, clearly there were many there that devalued the Lord's table before, because of their actions, and the Lord judged them, like taking his death in vain. Well, how did he judge them? It tells the next verse, For this cause there are many weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And then next verse, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. For if we judge ourselves, for if we would judge ourselves. That means that the, the word judge ourselves, those words mean to separate thoroughly. Separate ourselves from the way of the flesh and the ways of the world and judge them, pass judgment on them. How? Well, we're to call them in question, pronounce judgment on them, and sentence them to death. Well, how do we do that? Well, Paul, the apostle said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. God, I've, I'm coming before you now, before I partake. You know the condition of my heart. Help me, change me, correct me, do whatever is needful because I am crucified with Christ. That old me is dead and buried and gone. Well, what's the result of this self-examination and searching of the heart that, that's spoken of here in 1 Kings chapter 8? We see it in verse 39 and 40. Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive and do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men, that they may fear thee all the days that they live in the land which thou gavest them unto our fathers. Forgiveness. Mercy. Grace poured out. Why? We've become honest with the Lord. The fifth case that Solomon brings before the Lord is in regard to strangers that don't know the Lord and come in from other countries. It says in verse 41, Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake. Solomon said, Let them come in. And he gives a reason. Look at verses 42 and 43. For they shall hear of thy great name and of thy strong hand and of thy stretched out arm when he shall come and pray toward this house. Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name, to fear thee as do my, thy people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have builded is called by thy name. You see, Solomon's heart is very consistent with the heart of God, isn't it? Willing that none would perish, all would come to repentance. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, it says, Thou shalt neither vex a stranger, nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Well, isn't that interesting? He said, you were strangers too, but now you're mine. We were strangers too, weren't we? But now we belong to God. We were alienated from Christ, now we belong to him. And Solomon's saying, treat these strangers the same, with mercy and grace, the same as I have shown you. 
Deuteronomy 10, verse 19. Love ye therefore the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. God's saying, remember where you came from. Remember how I rescued you. And oftentimes it's, it's so easy for me to slip into a pattern of looking at somebody that doesn't know Christ and expecting them to act like a Christian. You ever do that? But you know what? I was there. I had among the foulest mouths that I know, among other things, and God delivered me. And he can deliver anybody. That's his desire. God's also saying, I want only one form of worship in this land. He doesn't want the people worshiping other gods, chasing after strange gods, seeking after idols. No, one form of worship. Deuteronomy 31, verse 12 says, Gather the people together, men and women and children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates, that they may hear and they may learn and fear the Lord your God and observe to do all the words of this law. Did you know that the temple in Israel was intended by God to be a place of prayer for all nations? It tells us in Isaiah 56, verse 7, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for who? For all people. That's an open invitation, isn't it? How great God is. Throughout the Old Testament, certainly into the New Testament, God is beckoning to sinful man just to come to him. Come to worship him, the one true and living God, the only God, the only Savior. The sixth case that Solomon brought before the Lord, we see in verse 44. It says, If thy people go out to battle against their enemy, whithersoever thou shalt send them, and shall pray unto the Lord toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house that I have built for thy name. Saying, then hear from thou in heaven their prayer and their supplications and maintain their cause or maintain their justice. Solomon prayed with the idea that God would answer the prayers for victory in the battles that God sent them to fight. In other words, God, you sent us and you're going to give us victory. Wonderful to know that where God guides, he provides. He says if he sent them out to battle, he's going to give the victory. And it's not a blanket request for blessing on every military endeavor. And in the Old Testament, there were many, many wars that this verse describes. But in, in the Christian's life in Christ, there, there is no pray for victory in war. And here's why. John 3.17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There may be defensive wars, but there were no provoked attacks. And if that was the case, if there were no provoked attacks, there would be no need for defensive wars, would there be? No. God doesn't want us to perish. He came to save us. 
The seventh case speaks of man's sin nature, verses 46 through 50. If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, and thou be angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy, far or near, yet if they shall bethink themselves in a land whither they were carried captives, and repent and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned, and we have done perversely. We have committed wickedness. And so return unto thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, which led them away captive, and pray unto thee toward their land, which thou, givest, which thou gavest unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I have built for thy name. Then... Hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven for their dwelling place and maintain their cause and forgive thy people that have sinned against thee and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against thee and give them compassion before them who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. You know, what a, what a great prayer this is. You know, it's a, it's a plea to God. God, you know that we've all sinned. Romans 6.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the... 3.23, come short of the glory of God. That's all of us. And Solomon is saying, listen, we, we've all sinned, but then there's an opportunity for repentance. And Solomon is making it so very clear. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we know this involves confession of sin, and forgiveness being granted and turning from sin, fully, fully trusting in God for the victory. I'm thankful for these verses. I'm thankful that God is so willing to forgive. He understands a repentant heart. He hears the cry of a repentant heart. And he's come to deliver. Romans 8.1 there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now the word condemnation, he's not talking about condemnation in hell. He's, he's talking about judge, judge, judgment, excuse me, right justice. And you see, the gospel does not pronounce condemnation as the law did, but rather, and I'm so grateful for this, that the gospel provides pardon that is so important for us to understand. Free from condemnation. And then it sets us at liberty. Freedom. And we'll wrap up with these verses in Romans 8, 37 through 39. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors for, through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have a pretty good survey of, of Solomon's heart. You know, coming to God with seven cases for both mercy and, and God for certainly to intervene in the lives of his people. And I'm grateful to God that he's, he is merciful and we can call upon him at any time.
And you know, he hears us. In the cases that are provided here, they should encourage us to, to come clean before the Lord. And, and in one section in particular where, where he said every man should search out the plague in his own heart. I think that is so critical for us. You know, what is it in, in this heart that God is, is an offense to you, doesn't belong? Lord, you search it out. Show me. I'll search it out through prayer and through your spirit that we can walk with our God in strength and power and know that he hears us because the script, when we pray. Because the scriptures say if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. So this is God's call to us as Christians. You know, and family, in a time such as this in which we live where, where things are just seem to be piling up around us, it's time we, we sink in and press into the Lord. And if you can come on Monday night, it'll be a blessing to get together just to bring this election before the Lord. We know that God raises up the kings and rulers. He takes them down, doesn't he? But he also calls to pray that, number one, our hearts can be right. And we'll watch God do amazing things in right hearts, won't we? So, Father, we thank you for the word of God. And, and for Solomon, I mean, what a beautiful, beautiful prayer this is. Such a sensitivity to your spirits, such a sensitivity to the condition of the hearts of, of Israel, such a sensitivity even to his own heart, Lord. And that's what we need. We need a sensitivity to that which is in our heart, Lord, that, that we would be right before you in all ways. And we do thank you, God, and we praise you that, that our, our hearts groan when we're in a place of turmoil or sin. And it's a call by you to just come to you and, and just fully immerse ourselves in the Scriptures and fully immerse ourselves in your love and fully immerse ourselves in, in forgiveness so that we can walk before you uprightly and with power and with grace. And as Solomon said here, with compassion. We thank you, God, and we praise you for your word and for your care about our, in our lives, how much you love us, Lord, how grateful we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.